Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we have Rachel Alba. She does sex coaching for recovering Catholics and progressive Christians. Um, and she created Sex with Spirit because she wants you to have access to sex-positive, LGBTQ plus affirming sexual theology and an approach to spirituality that trusts that where you are is exactly where you should be and not, quote, the devil pulling you away. If you're not sure of how to trust your own body, your own intuition, your own spiritual life, then there is a problem. You've been invaded by... I would argue that's the enemy. That's the quote devil pulling you away is toxic theology. That's like warping your sex and warping your mind into all of this guilt and shame. What are your thoughts just off the bat about that? Well, I think one of my very favorite definitions of sin is from Paul Tillich. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's like a pretty, he's a big philosopher, theologian who's like, pretty meaty when you read stuff by him, but he wrote this one essay called You Are Accepted. And in it, he talks about sin as things that disconnect us from ourselves, from other people, and from God. And then grace, on the other hand, is anything that connects us to ourselves, to other people, or to God. And so when you start to use that as like a definition of what's sinful and what's not, it helps you a lot with that question of like, is this intuition or is this not good? Um, and the idea of like, is this really bringing me in better touch and closer touch with who I am? Or is it getting me further away from that? Is this helping me, you know, like one question that I get a lot from people is like, is it okay to have sex before marriage? And so like, well, if you're having sex before marriage and you feel like it's helping you get closer to yourself and to God and to other people, because ideally like from a relationship, you're like, dipping into the infinite pool of love through your love for this other person such that like that then gets pulled out and, and, and given to the rest of the world, then, okay, great. That's probably a graced experience. But if it's something that's causing you to like pull away from a lot of things and pull away from who you think you really are, that can be really problematic. Song of Songs is actually an unmarried woman 
Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if we want to talk about somebody in the Bible who is an autonomous person in control of her sexuality and has a, a strong opinion about it that's very well fleshed out, it's the Shulamite woman speaking in Song of Songs. So if you think about Song of, uh, Song of Songs, right, it's, a, it's essentially a long marriage song. It's a celebratory marriage song between a man and a woman who are not married yet. And it seems very clear that they've had sexual relationships with each other prior to that. But Paul Ricoeur, who's a, who's a phenomenologist philosopher, right, wrote in the nuptial metaphor that that's actually an elaboration of the song that Adam sings to Eve in the Garden of Eden, which is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And so if you think about it that way, part of what makes Song of Songs such a beautiful book is that it's witnessing to the fact that we have this ability, even in a post-lapsarian, even in after the fall of man, in, in our current lives, we still have the ability to actually experience sex and sexuality in that way that acknowledges that original unity that was felt between Adam and Eve. Um, and that's really beautiful because I don't think Adam and Eve are literal human beings, but they're, it's a metaphor, right, for a, a, what a world would be like if we didn't have sin in it. And so to be able to acknowledge that even in the Bible, we've got this book that happens after the fall of man that acknowledges the sanctity of sex and the sanctity of like, even the like raunchy parts of sex. So it's not just like pure, beautiful Virgin Mary sex. It's like, no, we've got metaphors for like cunnilingus in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's outside of marriage that we see this beautiful um, display of Eros ultimately as being a way in which we can get back into the Garden of Eden. And in some ways, since in the Garden of Eden, like God was walking among Adam and Eve, like, sex can be a way in which we can experience God's presence in our world here and right now, you know? Um, And that is so, so cool. (laughs) I love that so much. (laughs) You are only as sexually free as your spiritual beliefs allow you to be. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So like, if you have a spiritual belief that's holding you in a shameful space, like that's the thing that needs to grow. When it comes to not having shame, it is actually important to realize that like our sexuality at its core is good. Like you can 100% decide that like sex before marriage is not okay. And you might be able to be able to not have shame later, but there needs to be some sort of baseline of sexuality is good, that our bodies are good. Yeah. But I've heard that from the pulpit so many times and it doesn't work as a catchphrase to me because I feel like that, phrase alone has been been so tainted that reminds me of a youth pastor with a faux hawk talking about how (laughs) hot his wife is and how sex is good but again I don't you know I haven't in my experience found that that line translated even into my marriage because I was always in a state of fear like I could have done sex better I could have been in a more holy space I could have honored God better like there was the guilt just stayed totally and that's I think what's like so in the Catholic Church you don't you get some of the purity culture stuff it's not like I didn't know who Josh Harris was growing up but like (laughs) it's more so geared into this um into the theology of the body by John Paul II which is really really heavy on the like sex is good 
And because we have this huge idea that like sex can maybe bring us back to the, our original state of being in relationship with God really closely before the fall of man, there's this expectation that every time you have sex, it's got to be this like perfect, beautiful experience that like is God filled and everything's amazing. But that's not life. Like, I mean, you're married, I'm married. We've had sex where it's like, okay, great. It happened and I could have cared less. Or you've had sex where it's like, I'm so glad we did that because I was really stressed out and I really just needed to like use my body. And like, that's fine. It doesn't have to be this like beautiful, um, amazing mystical experience every time you have sex. And I, I, I do think that that's sort of the, the, the problem alongside it is that, okay, cool. Our sexuality is good. Our bodies are good. Um, and God wants you to have pleasure which is like why fruit tastes delicious, but also why sex feels good. And you need to like flesh out the idea that like sex is good simply because pleasure is good. Not that pleasure is all we're going for in sex, but that it's like an important piece of it and that you deserve to feel pleasure in your body and God desires for you to feel pleasure in your body. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And I think that just takes work because you don't have to ditch the spiritual element of this to understand it. And then I think the more expansive you become with your education, education is never anything to fear. It's very empowering, sort of create a sexual ethic and a spiritual ethic that really resonates with you and not your demonic evil feelings, but you as a person that God made you to be. Totally. And that's like so much of what I work people work with when I'm working with my clients is so much of the conversation is like helping them figure out for themselves what feels right and what feels not right. So mm -hmm. what feels like it's bringing them closer to God and what feels like it's taking them farther away from God. So are, I'm, I'm assuming the obstacles that you immediately might face are the theological obstacles as far as helping people to discern what is actually them and their own true beliefs versus what they've been told? Like, how do you help people figure out how to split those two things? Yeah. So I think a really important piece of this is to realize that like, if you're even at the point where you're asking this question, you're growing. Mm. So like, I know for myself, one of the first books I read when I, after I was like, I think I'm atheist. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> suggested that I read um, Ken Wilber's The Brief History of Everything. And so I read it and through his model, I was like, oh, I'm just growing. I'm going from that like stage three to stage four transition that I mentioned with Fowler. Um, and Wilbur's going to say it, but using colors instead. It doesn't really matter. But there's this like transition of of locus of authority being in someone else or locus of authority being within yourself. Mm. And hashing that out can be really painful, but the first step is just realizing that like, you're actually growing. And not only are you growing like from a psychological development way, but we actually believe that like, and we have studies that can demonstrate that like, this is actually a really important piece of the puzzle for getting closer to God. Mm. And so it's actually part of your spiritual growth that you have to be in this space of figuring out what you really believe. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's very encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. The next piece of it, especially when it comes to like sexuality, is really acknowledging like what the shame response is in our bodies and how to deal with that. Right. So like 
somebody may have spoken about spoken to this before, but basically like if you have a kid who's crawling across the room and is about to stick their hand in a socket, you're going to tell them to stop. And because you say it with maybe some force, (laughs) they are going to have their body be flooded with hormones from their sympathetic nervous system, which is their fight, flight, fawn. I'm missing one. Freeze. Freeze response. Yeah. Yeah. So like the hormones are going to flush through their body. And for a small little kid, it's going to be so many emotions that they won't be able to handle it and they'll just start crying. (laughs) And so like that same response happens to us, right? So if you are doing a sexual act and there's a feeling of shame or a feeling of guilt that comes up, that's not necessary. You're having those same hormones that show up in your body. And it's somebody else's voice in your head telling you that it's wrong, right? It's your voice that's associated with the youth pastor that had the faux hawk um, right. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. You as the loving adult would go over to the small child as they start crying, lift them up, soothe them, let them know that it's okay. And then that child would calm down. You might get them distracted with something else, something like that. So the same thing is what you need to do with yourself. You have that shame response that arises and you need to get yourself back into a parasympathetic state, which is the opposite of your sympathetic nervous system. So sympathetic is fight or flight. Parasympathetic is rest, digest, healing is in there too. Um, So anything that's going to relax you and that is anything that brings you back into the present moments. That could be focusing on your breath. Um, It could be stroking the inside of your arm. We've got a lot of nerve endings on the inside of your arm. So that feels really, really nice and soothing. Sometimes it could be petting your hair, you know, whatever it is, that's going to soothe you is exactly what needs to happen in order for you to move through that shame response. Mm. After that, if you know that there's an action that generally produces the shame response, what you want to do is start to intentionally do the action that you want to not feel shame around, but put it in the middle of having two things that you have positive experiences with. So when we think about neurons in our brains, right? Neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you've been taught your whole life that masturbation is wrong, and then whenever you masturbate, you feel guilty, those neurons that associate masturbation and shame are going to sync up together all the time. Yeah. And so what we want to do is start to rewire your brain, actually. And so what you're going to start to do is, okay, I'm going to masturbate, but before I masturbate, I have only positive feelings associated with this song that like I love or something. So you're going to listen to the song, get yourself into that state and then masturbate maybe even to the song. And then after the fact, do something else that's going to calm your nervous system. That's going to get you back into that positive state. So like super, super practical thing as an answer to that question. Um, But it's really, really helpful, right? To realize like you are already growing in your faith. You're not like going to hell. (laughs) You are just growing and that's a good thing. God wants you to grow. And on top of that, like, here's how you deal with the shame response in a very practical way. That's both neurologically accurate as well as like can help you through stuff. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I'm actually doing like a whole week long training on this next starting on the 14th. So probably today is okay. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask how long 
typically do you see it taking people to get through, like get over a hump like this? So it really depends on when they start working with someone, right? So like, you know, it's like if you, I used to be a massage therapist and like when people would come to me and they would be like, my shoulder hurts and they would be upset that after one session, their shoulder didn't stop hurting. The question became, well, when did the shoulder start hurting? And so like, if that's been going on for a really long time, it will continue, it will take more time to undo it. Mm. And so in the same way, like depending upon where you are in the process of like growing in your faith in a way that's allowing you to really own it as yours and not just like taking on the things that other people are saying. In addition to, you know, how much experience do you have experience, like uh, exploring your sexuality Another thing that's a really huge factor is what kind of community are you a part of? Like when I was going through the phase of trying to sort through how I felt about God and how I felt about sexuality, I was fortunately in a space where like it was the last two years of college and then I moved to New York City. And so I had was feeling really crunchy during those two years where I was still in college and still around all the people at the Catholic Center that knew me really well that like expected me to show up to things even though I actually think now looking back on it, they totally would have been able to support me through the process, but I didn't trust them to do that. I didn't think they would be able to help me. I thought I would be judged. Mm -hmm. Um, And as soon as I got to New York and I ended up being a part of a community of people that were more sex positive, I could relax into that growth that was already ready to happen and be okay with it. And that's part of it too, is like finding that support along with the challenge, right? One of the big things in educational theory is that in order to really grow and to flourish, you need to have a, a, you need the right ratio of support to challenge. So a lot of times if you're like going through this stuff all by yourself, you're like the only person that you know at your church that like has any doubts about anything, that's way too much challenge for you to be able to like grow at a steady rate. But if you have the support of even like one or two friends that you can talk to, you're going to be able to go on that trajectory a little smoother. Um, and that's also part of what, like why coaching is really helpful is like, cause it provides that added support system so that the challenge doesn't feel quite as challenging. And so you can grow a little faster. Um, but the length of time it takes really depends on the person. And it also depends yeah. on how, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens and there's a lot of stuff that's gone on. So everybody's situation is a little different. Um, So it sort of depends, but those are some factors. Yeah. Can I ask your journey of figuring out that you wouldn't be going to hell or that God wouldn't be furious at you if you went on a journey like this? Cause I feel like that's the next hurdle. Right. So like part of it's that the God that believed in good and bad as two very specific things fell apart for me. Um, I had an experience that was really confusing where it like was both an incredible, amazing experience that felt so God filled that gave me almost like a mystical experience of God's love. And then at the same time, feeling like that is not the case, that my perception of that experience was radically different from the reality. Mm And I, I couldn't, my God that I believed in at the time couldn't hold that paradox. And so that God had to fall apart. And one of my favorite phrases from this 
Um, he's an incredible, brilliant teacher. He has a decent amount of stuff written about him that is not so positive. But one of my favorite phrases from him is, the God you don't believe in doesn't exist. And so if you think about the God that you believed in when you were six, that God is very different from the God you believe in today. And the God that you believed in when you were six doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that your spiritual experiences weren't real, but that that perception of God wasn't big enough for reality. And so my understanding of God wasn't big enough to hold the reality that I was experiencing in my life. And so I had to trust my own intuition about that as opposed to something else. And it was actually going to be more painful for me to try to fit myself into the box than it was for me to not. Mm. And so, you know, I moved to New York and found a community of people that were open-minded about all this stuff. And I'd already like been doing yoga, like every other person in the, on the planet at this point, almost, you know, another satanic activity. So I was like (laughs) interested and curious in like, um, in Hinduism, I think part of it is also in Christian Catholicism, there's a pretty important encyclical, which an encyclical is a fancy document that's been put out by the Vatican um, that very clearly states that people who are not Catholic or who are not Christian can still get to heaven. Um, and so there's this really strong idea that like there's value in other traditions, even if they don't believe that Jesus is the savior of the world. So there's that component to things that I think was actually really helpful. Um, But also moving into a community in New York where it was like, oh, great. Everybody does yoga. Everybody's studying, you know, Tantra and Taoism and Buddhism. And, you know, I dated somebody who was um, not as sincerely, not, he had been raised Hasidic and then left the Hasidic community but still went to a synagogue and it was a super amazing reform synagogue um, called Romemu in New York City. And I would go to Romemu with him because like it was such an uplifting experience that was certainly a God-filled space. And it was a much more, it felt more resonant with me at the time than it, than for me to go to a Catholic church where it felt like it was boxing me in, in a way that somehow Judaism was not at the time. In part because Judaism has a long history of doubting the existence of God. And that's kind of encouraged to ask those questions. Yeah, I know. I love that. I'd only learned about that in the last couple of years that in Judaism, they don't believe in in an eternal hell. (laughs) And um, also that they love debate and they enjoy and welcome different people coming together using their heads and their spirits to debate these really huge questions. If we could just understand that that wasn't a terrifying thing and that was actually wonderful. You know, these are all the ways that we box in God too. It's, it's so ridiculous that we would say you can't find the one true God, if you walk into a synagogue, or as soon as you walk into a Buddhist temple, you can't find the one true God. It's really asinine to me. But this is when we get into a territory of attack again, from a conservative perspective. And I don't mean to alienate anyone that has the conservative perspective. Again, please, you know, you're welcome into this conversation. I definitely was raised to believe that yoga and Eastern practices, even Eastern medicine, as much as, um, what am I thinking of? Like the acupuncture. Need, the needles, exactly. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, acupuncture. Um, 
all of that was something to be feared. And then I, like you, was going out into the real world and being introduced to people who are practicing these things who just happen to be really wonderful people. And I just happened to get coffee with them and they would not shift me into their demonic world and ruin my life, but actually expand and draw from what I was already believing and already intuiting to be true. So again, there's nothing scary there, but I do think we have that hurdle to jump over in this practice of Christianity where you're supposed to be scared. Yoga is something I get a question about not too often, but a little bit. There's plenty of YouTubers that have come out and spoken against yoga and tried to prove it by this mantra that you say is actually summoning demons. And it's wild to me because in my most stressed out times, even during pregnancy, I went to yoga and it was a breath of fresh air and a moment for me to be like, oh my God, okay, here we are. And I wasn't <laughs> talking to the demons of yoga. I was talking to the same spirit that I'm always in communion with. So can you speak to some of those misconceptions and then demystify it a bit for us? Yeah, I think part of it's that, okay, so on the one hand, the yoga that we generally practice in the US is not the yoga that you would practice if you were like a Hindu monk. <laughs> sure. Like just <laughs> putting it out there, right? It's the same way with like, one of the things that I loved learning about in New York was also like Tantra. Same thing. The Tantra that you learn about in the US is not the Tantra that's actually practiced. Tantra that's actually practiced is way wilder than the Tantra we do in the US oh, okay. <laughs> by like a ton in ways that I'll describe that later. <laughs> um, yoga in the US is more than anything else. It's trying the asanas, the, the actual poses that your body is in are just poses, right? They're just ultimately stretches and postures that are useful. And when you're breathing, breathing along with movement is an incredible practice regardless of what you're doing, right? There's like very, the idea of walking a labyrinth, which is a Christian practice, does involve walking and breathing in a rhythm with intentionality. And mm. the goal there is really just to get your body and your, your, your mind to chill out enough that you can be in your body and trusting that your body actually has wisdom there, that your brain can't actually process without you quieting it enough to focus. And so seeing that yoga is doing that, right? The other thing that to note about yoga as a physical practice is that I mean, again, most of the time when you're doing yoga at like a gym or at a studio in the U.S., you're really just working out. Like yeah. <laughs> every once in a while you find an instructor who's like really cool and they like bring in a singing bowl or they like burn some sage, but like you're not getting the full experience of like what is the Hindu ritual and what are you really trying to get to. But the main purpose of these asanas were in fact to get you to the point where you could meditate. Mm. where you could sit in the silence of yourself and realize your connection to the divine. Okay. That prayer. The intention exactly yeah. was to get yourself to a place where you could pray. And I think we've all had those days where you like sit down to try to pray. And there's this literally like your laundry list of everything you could possibly imagine is going through your head. And so it's actually really helpful. Like if you thought about it, if you had gone for a run 
if you like ran a couple miles and then came home and tried to pray, you would have probably calmed your mind. Yeah. Or if you'd like had a little mini dance party and then tried to pray, it would probably be easier. And so thinking about yoga in that way is, is sort of both one, it, it's original intention. And also at this point, yoga is basically just a workout at most places. I know that sounds terrible, but like, it no, I mean, I live in LA. I've had really funny yoga classes. Like one time there was a girl and she had her sound bowl and everything, but she was kind of crying about just guys mistreating her, like F boys. <laughs> and she was just like pretending to do like a sermon about like respecting ourselves, but she was actually just talking trash about LA dudes. And I was like, just sitting there like in a pose, like... This is not spiritual. <laughs> and I mean, like, it just made I mean, me I hear you. <laughs> I'm all about like, true, true. However, just shut up so we can take this class. <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. So, and also, it just comes down to trust of yourself. Like we're being taught such a fear-based faith, and I'm like, totally. You know, Jesus wasn't walking into spaces all scared. You know, it's it's so crazy too that they'll still talk about oh, you don't surround yourself by this kind of people for too long or you'll become like them. And we saw Jesus do the exact opposite. Again, it all comes back to this embodiment, trusting your body, trusting your spirit, like trusting that even if you did go into a purely demonic yoga class, if that exists, that your spirit would be able to recognize it. And you'd be like, oh, this is actually real darkness. I gotta go. (laughs) You know, like I would recognize it if that was happening. I have full confidence that I would. Totally. Like, I mean, we can, yeah. I mean, I've intuited darkness before and, you know, like it sounds all whimsical and Game of Thrones or something, but it's, it's, yeah, you can intuit when something is off, when quote, the energy is off or if it's just a darker experience that you're having. I've walked out of parties, out of people's houses. I would walk out of a class or a church, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And like, it's ultimately, like you said, that self-trust piece is so huge. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that for people can be, what can be really helpful is to actually think about like, well, where do you trust yourself? Like what's an area of your life that you do trust yourself completely? Um, Maybe that's in like, it could be something simple. Like I trust myself to know how to make a cup of coffee that I like, you know, like yeah. doesn't have to be huge mm-hmm. and focusing on like all the ways in which you can trust yourself and you do trust yourself and focusing on those things. And over time, like, you know, what you focus on is going to expand. And so being able to focus on the places where you trust yourself allows you to perhaps be more okay with taking that risk of trying something like yoga, especially if you're interested in it, like by all means, if you don't like it or don't want to try it, let it go. But it's there. Yeah. And there's also a lot of Eastern medicine that we're so remiss to ignore. If you can get an acupuncture session and heal your body in a way that Western pill popping was going to help you, I would definitely tell someone to opt for the natural route, the non-invasive route, the non-surgical route, and Eastern medicine offers a lot of those options. Totally. The other thing to know about Eastern medicine and specifically the languaging that is used with acupuncture, right? They talk about chi, um, which is spelled Q-I most of the time, that that is actually another word for blood flow. 
So, right. If you are being a massage therapist for almost a decade and then going into like, I've obviously worked with a lot of acupuncturists and like love them, but one of the ones that I trust the very most was like, you know, really what we're doing is stimulating blood flow. And if you have a tight muscle or if you have something that feels constricted, really what's going on there is you need to get like some old blood is stuck, not like stuck completely because obviously you still have blood flow there, but there's like gunk there that needs to be removed and like processed through your body. And so what these, what the actual needles are doing is bringing more blood flow to the area. So in traditional Chinese medicine, they might use the word qi, but kind of what they're actually talking about is blood flow, mm. which makes sense that like qi or, or our energy is really our, our blood flow. Um, and there's obviously a very complex philosophy around that, that like, I don't know enough about, but to speak really intelligently on, but that I do know for sure is that really what these things are doing is they're bringing blood flow to an area. Um, in order to release a muscle, in order to, to encourage healing and, you know, that kind of thing. I was going to do a terrible, like, late night host segue of, like, speaking of blood flow bringing to areas, <laughs> <laughs> being brought to areas. Oh my um, God. I'm all for the weird sexual transitions. <laughs> they are, like, terrible. part and parcel of my existence. Especially, I'm like, like, going through a sex coaching program. It's, like, everyone I know does that. <laughs> it's terrible. And I didn't even deliver it properly. <laughs> Trying to transition to Tantra. Yeah. I didn't know how you pronounce it. Tantric. Tantra. Tantra. Okay. Tantra. I know sexy. nothing about this and I'm excited to cool. go there. <laughs> so, <laughs> one of my very favorite people that I dated when I was living in New York and he's he was both instrumental in teaching me about Tantra, but also was instrumental in me coming back to Christianity. So cool. There you um, go. We met when we were like sitting at some random table before a workshop. <laughs> it's actually a BDSM workshop. So like okay. totally a whole other thing. Um, but we were like sitting at this table waiting for this workshop to start. And he like happened to ask me what religion I was. And I was like, it sort of depends on the day. And I, he was like, same here. Some days I feel more Buddhist. Some days I feel more Christian. Some days I feel more Jewish. And he's from Israel. So like he was raised sort of secularly and then, and then jumped into Hasidism. Um, and then from there joined a, an, an ashram in New York City that sadly actually ended up being a cult. He managed to escape from the cult. Um, and was really interested in like Buddhist meditation and had studied Christian mystics and all that sort of stuff in the process of his life. So he was a Tantra teacher when I met him and what he, his name is Kai Carell. If anyone wants to like look him up and look up his work now, he's sort of moved away from Tantra and moved into sort of more general new age spirituality. But he actually really studied the philosophy of Tantra when he was teaching it. And so there's two main components of Tantra when we're really talking about it. The one really important component is this idea of practicing doing profane things. And that sounds horrible on the one hand, but in ancient India, when you're developing this idea of what's profane, there are three main things that are considered profane. Um, eating meat, especially eating cows, mm. um, having profane sex and getting intoxicated. So like drinking alcohol. So two of those things, most of us are already doing anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like 
that's not a big deal. And the fighting third, for our right to do it. <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. all of, especially during a pandemic, my God, if alcohol didn't exist, we'd be a disaster. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's these three different things that, that they sort of considered were profane. And the basic idea was that in Tantra, you have this box of things that you consider sacred and you try to do something that's outside of that box to see if there's still God there. Well, wow. sort mm-hmm. of using this idea that like God is, is God is everywhere. God is such a big existent thing that like God can, can find God's self in anything. And it's more so our openness and our ability to experience God in that place. That's really the limiting factor. Um, and so they were really trying to do these profane actions. Now, some of these things got pretty wild, right? And this is where it's like the Tantra that you're learning at like the random workshop at your yoga studio is probably not anything related to actual Tantra because the tantric practices that are part of like Kashmir Shaivism, which is another way of saying Tantra. It's just a, a particular sect of Tantra. There's Buddhist Tantra, there's Hindu Tantra. Kashmir Shaivism is a version of Hindu Tantra. And what they, one of their main practices was to actually like sneak into a graveyard late at night, drink blood of a human Mm. and have sex in that graveyard. Weird as all anything. None of us are probably going to do that anytime soon. We definitely get arrested. And like, it is not on my list of things I want to do. Right. Yeah. That's not appealing. (laughs) Not cool at all. So you can see why like it came to the U S and we had to like simplify it to like breath work and sex postures. Wow. (laughs) But that's part of the profane thing. The idea is literally to like push yourself to the edges of what you consider sacred and see if you can do that thing that's on the profane edge. If somebody's interested in doing this, I always recommend like start with something simple, like skip mass one week and or skip church one week and see how it feels. Yeah. Do you feel closer to God? Do you feel further away? Oh, I love that. That that's interesting to think about the experimentation because it's bringing me back to talking to Pete Enns. He's a biblical theologian. He wrote this book called How the Bible Actually Works to help people break out of biblical literalism. Um, brilliant man. Um, considered by some to be heretical, of course. Yeah. But he talks, he kind of made the comparison of a dog on one of those like bouncy leashes in a yard and how if you are connected to the divine and you do care about doing good and living a blameless, sinless life, my personal definition of sin has been do no harm across the board, your body, the environment, others. If you're doing harm in any way, it's a sin. Um, But that said, he would talk about just how you can experiment with the boundaries and just trust that if you are connected to divinity and your goodness and your light, that you will always be like drawn back if you're going a little bit too far and you'll feel it. And my immediate example of that off subject was talking trash about Paul from the Bible. Mm -hmm. I said something like cruel about him. And I felt that like tug on my spirit, like, no, you've gone too far. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it was just a positive experience because I hadn't done anything gravely wrong, but I got that ping and I was able to then dive into why that was wrong. Mm. Why, like it, it brought so much openness to learning and educating. And I found a fearlessness to that. But on that, I'm really curious with this graveyard sex drinking blood. (laughs) Which is like the last thing any of us want to do. 
I'm like, okay, so what time do they recognize? <laughs> How much blood? <laughs> no, but in that, is this a consensual experience? Is yeah. it, so you're still doing it in a way that is not sinning, quote unquote. You're just, to me, this experiment sounds like you are going to the extreme of like, we honor death. We honor these places where we bury our dead. We do not engage in strange practices with bodily fluids. And we definitely do not have sex in any of these situations. But if everyone's consenting, I suppose you're not technically, quote, sinning, except where are you getting the blood from? I guess you might have had to cause some harm to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm not really, but I've always been a little fuzzy on that part. It wasn't something yeah. I, like I just it. wanted to like, I just wanted to clarify, like, does the tantric practice ever go into harm of others or disregarding others? Is profane sex non-consensual or with an animal or with someone that can't? consent ideally it's with somebody who's also consenting I, okay so it's not a rule well and part of it is like you're not really it's not like as um it's a lineage thing right so mm -hmm. like i think also another piece of this that i think is somewhat interesting is that and this isn't something that i would recommend for other people but if there's a way in which Tantra, this is the second piece of Tantra. So the first piece is this like testing the boundaries, right? Profane, sacred, profane, sacred, figuring out exactly what your box is, which is ultimately what deconstruction is as a process. That's yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. Um, the other part of it is that if we go through the history of Hinduism in like Vedic Hinduism, which is based on the Vedas, which is like their main book, right? So in Vedic Hinduism, there's a priest who has a very prescribed way of worshiping the deity, the divine. And the deity is actually like the statue of that deity. So Ganesh or Krishna or whomever. And so like, as they worship that deity, there's literally very prescribed things they have to do. So like you're using incense going in a circle, but if you went the opposite direction, it doesn't work anymore. And like, if you flick your wrist in a weird way, it, you're out. So like- A very Old Testament style. Super Old Testament style, very, very particular. And the yogis came along to go back to yoga and they said, okay, sweet, we see you, but we don't think that's, we don't think God really cares quite as much. So we're going to like, you know, take this stick in the ground and worship the stick as though it were God. So they're going to be looking at God as something that's not just in that deity, but could be sort of anywhere, mm. but they're going to be focusing mostly on things that are like somewhat inanimate. What the tantrikas do is they say, okay, great. We see you yogis. We raise you. <laughs> and we're going to say that you can find God in another person. Mm. so taking it that extra level of saying like not only is god god's not just in the statue god's not just in the world that's an, that's inanimate god is actually in this human being who's in front of me and with that that's the intention behind having sex so mm -hmm. when you're in that graveyard having sex drinking blood the intention of that having sex is not necessarily for like sexual pleasure. It's not even for like you to feel close to that person in a, in a sort of emotional way. It's a practice for you to realize like your preexistent marriage to the divine and also the presence of the divine in the other person. Mm. 
And so your reason for having sex is such a radically different reason than the one that like we usually have in the Western world for having sex that like it doesn't totally correlate to like, is this sinning? Because we would just be thinking about it totally differently. What I think is really important about that second piece and why I think that like Christianity and some aspects of Tantra, I will never tell somebody that they should go have sex in a graveyard with. (laughs) Yeah, no, we are not recommending that here at all. No, no, no. (laughs) Um, And even like, I don't, I, I, you know, most of the time in tantric practices, you're also just having sex with a random person. It's not something that you have a pre-existent long-term relationship with. It's really just like more so to prove that you can have this experience and be able to still see the divine in any, any person really. Um, so I think Jesus calls us to that. (laughs) I would say, Um, the Catholic church is a concept known as the mystical body of Christ. And like for Catholics, when you participate in communion, you're just enacting the fact that we are all part of the mystical body of Christ. And I believe it's Paul, but I'm Catholic. So we don't read the Bible as well as, as, as other Christian denominations do, Mm -hmm. but I believe it's Paul who talks about like, you know, you're the eyes of God, this person's the hands of God, this person's, uh, you know, and he goes through all these different body parts. And if we really believe that, then we should be able to, you know, see the divine in, in another person. And that's not, it's not the same as saying like, you are God, right? It's not right. some blasphemy like that. Obviously, like we put Jesus in a separate category, but can we see the way in which the divine is expressing itself through you? Um, and making that a practice that's really essential. And even within our sexual experiences, not all of the time, because we don't want to like prescribe so much stuff and put so much weight on this action that was already weighted with so much. But is there a way in which our sexual activity with another person can be a way in which we recognize their divine nature or like the divine that lives within them? And similarly, for them to sort of see that for us. Um, and you can feel free to shift that language because that's not exactly perfect, but there's not sort of a, a, you know, you know, like how is, how are we learning more about what God is by this person's existence? Yeah, it's funny because I'm always hearing pushback in my head, probably partially because I'm on YouTube and I have to actually get those comments. Totally. Um, so I'm always thinking of that and it's just interesting because I keep being upset at this uh, Christian teacher named Lisa Bevere because she put out this purity ebook on her Instagram. It was like a little slide and very purity culture heavy, but also very heavy on terrible messaging for men. It was written for women, but it was about, you know, like kind of that whole idea that if a woman is willing to sleep with you, then she doesn't have inherent value herself or she clearly doesn't value herself because she went home with you like from a bar and Christians are so resistant to considering divinity in each other, even though the Bible does said we are made in God's image and we're so hesitant to actually have genuinely respectful, honoring experiences with people. Like we would rather at times take someone home from a bar and just like kind of turn our blinders on and just have sex with them. And my challenge is 
you may be offended by us openly saying and verbalizing, hey, next time you take that girl or guy home from a bar, you are practicing teaching this teaching that they have God's fingerprint all over them, that they are a part of that divinity, that no matter how short her skirt, no matter how quickly he took you home, no ma- like nothing else matters. What we are saying is if you're having these experiences anyway, then why don't you just take our suggestion and actually try to make them divine. And the interesting thing that I find in that when I shifted out of a major moment of promiscuity, and I probably feel differently than you do about yours, just the way you presented it, because mine had a lot of turmoil involved. Like I wasn't truly enjoying the experience that I was having because of this, but um you know, it's just like so resistant to just actually allowing there to be honor and respect in that. And when I started inviting that in and saying, God, you're coming in this bedroom with me, you're coming into the sexual experience, my desire to have sex with people and absolutely my desire to use bodies for my pleasure completely disappeared. Like now if I see a really handsome guy and we're having a flirtation or something and he has a broken heart about something. It's like, I used to kind of be very vampiric about people's energy and wanting their bodies Mm. with mine. And now I just see if sexuality is not on the table, if that's not what we're presenting each other, then I'm not looking at that person. I'm not objectifying that person in that way. And if I were to invite someone in my bedroom with this new filter, I guess, of tantra is what you're saying then you can't really invite i mean you can you can still have a negative experience but you know what i mean it's like you can't disrespect it if you are willingly deciding i'm going to bring divinity into this i'm going to bring honor into all sexual experiences no matter who the person is this is reminding me of like what strangely enough There's a lot of things I don't like about the catechism and the way the Catholic Church talks about sex. But one of them (laughs) that I do actually like is the definition of chastity, um, which is shocking. It is not, I mean, so the way the catechism is and what it is, is basically like a huge book that talks about like, these are the theological principles that make up the Catholic faith. And it goes into literally everything. But the definition it gives for chastity is quote, the integration of sexuality and thus inner unity of the person in their bodily and spiritual being. Beautiful. Right? From that point, it goes into a laundry list of like all the things that we can think of that we would think any Christian church would talk about regarding sex. (laughs) Like, you know, no masturbation, no sex before marriage, no homosexuality, all all the things. But it starts with this really beautiful definition. And I think part of what you're talking about is like having that integration piece there like sexual integration actually requires that we in some way invite the spiritual aspect of our beings into the bedroom because if we don't then like you are sort of disintegrated because there's a piece of yourself that like especially as as christians like your soul is like really the seat of your being right we're I mean, I hate this. I think it's sometimes attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it really isn't actually him. The like, you're not a body having a soul experience. You're like a soul having a human experience or something. Yeah. 
I don't know. Something along those lines. Yeah, I don't know who said it, but I've heard that. It's also not really accurate. But um, (laughs) so far as the basics of that, like, general feeling is, like, we're spiritual beings before we're physical. And it's not to actually put one higher than the other. I'm very much pro, like, full incarnational theology. Um, The incarnation being a fancy word for, like, God in, in human form thinking that like our spiritual selves are also fully integrated into our, into our bodies. Mm. But that sexual integration piece is really essential because if you're disintegrated, you can't have a chaste relationship. And to that point, if you're in the bedroom, like I've also heard this from a lot of people that like you either, you know, it's like, even if you're married, so it's like totally fully sanctioned, it's not sinful, but you sort of have to like turn off your, your, the part of you that's spiritual in order to go have sex with your spouse because they feel so much like two different parts of yourself. And the real question is how do we integrate that back? And I think, I mean, on a very practical level as a sex coach, sensuality is a really good way to slow things down and help you become more conscious, eye gazing, breathing together, things like that. Um, A lot of those practices are involved in Tantra because Tantra actually does have physical practices in it that can be really useful in a way that Christianity is not. So that's some, that's another piece of, of why I bring that in and why it's been important to me. Um, Yeah. I love that. Dispelling the idea of goal oriented sex, the goal being penetration to male orgasm. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And thank you, 2020, the female orgasm is becoming more important to people. But... Oh my God. And a shout out quickly to Betty Dodson. I don't know if you know who Betty Dodson is, but she is the mother of female masturbation. Yeah. She, is this from like the seventies? Totally. She's actually dying right now. So oh. if any of the people watching this are people who feel comfortable masturbating and are female, um, I, I think she'd probably accept male sexual energy too, but she's requesting as she's dying that we send all of our orgasmic energy, her direction to help her in her transition. Um, so sad for the sexological world that she is leaving us, but also let's help her go out with a bang. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes. 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 But sensuality, the point of sex is not necessarily penetration. And I mean, I think especially when you talk about like transgender experience of sex, homosexual experiences of sex, asexual experiences of like what makes them feel connected and, and embodied in that connection. Mm. Um, we have to expand our definition of sex. Yes. absolutely. Um, not to say that penetrative sex is, is a bad thing, but like good sex, really good sex I think penetration is going to be the cherry on top. And that doesn't mean that like you can't have like, you know, a quickie in the afternoon sometimes, but like. um, Just expanding your definition as a person. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I'm still fascinated by like when I thought of Tantra, I see a bunch of illustrations of impossible sexual positions. But you have to be like part of Circus Delay in order to like (laughs) be able to do these things. Yeah. (laughs) I think of Sting and his wife having like a, I don't like there's, it's just, I don't really know anything about it. So basically the concept is expanding your view of what is actually profane and you or rather, like it, what's actually sacred. 
which actually sacred, okay, that you once thought was profane. And you likened it to the deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, which I completely agree. And it goes back to what Pete N said about the dog on the leash, which is like, you go a little bit too out and you feel it, you sense it right away. And I keep using this example, but when I welcomed embodiment, when I welcomed the idea that my partners were worthy of honor, as was I, I only had one last experience where I slept with someone and I just completely intuited that it was going to fall apart. He wasn't, he was going to leave me on red. It wasn't going to be a respectful experience. And I just was in a habitual moment of like, this is what I always do. Yeah. So, um, so to me, that was that moment where the profane showed itself. It was like, oh, the profane is when you know you're going to be left on red and this person was not going to be aligned with you. They weren't going to respect you. Like that to me is where it became, felt like sin light or something. Like I wasn't dying and like crying in the shower over it but it was not a good feeling not something I wanted to invite into my life again so I feel like there's more practical ways obviously than drinking blood in a graveyard where you start experimenting with some of these boundaries you totally. know yeah what are some other examples of like tantra experimentation with let's say a partner so one of my favorite practices um I mean, there's a, there's a ton, a ton, a ton. Um, but one of the ones that I think is the most, hmm, I'm like, this is really complicated. Maybe I'll pick another one. That one's complicated. Pujas are amazing. Puja means ritual worship. And so it's like a very complicated form of, of how you, you take some time and you actually like do a practice of worshiping the divine within your partner. It's not really worship because that's, you know, saved for actual divine creatures, but like it, it's a way of attuning yourself to being able to better see the divine in the other person. And you offer things like, you know, you can light a candle, you can offer incense, you can, um, if you're somebody who doesn't have incense, maybe like a spray that smells good or something like, um, food, chocolate, sweet things, dried apricots, stuff like that. Um, flower petals and roses are really beautiful. Um, I like to use, like you could use a rose and like brush somebody's face. That feels absolutely amazing. If you've never had that happen to you, you should totally buy some roses later on. Yeah, that has not happened to me. (laughs) Do it to yourself and then do it to your 10 month old just because I'm sure they'll think it's a lovely experience because it's like soft and and smells good and all that kind of thing. Um, And then- I always pull out peacock feathers when I do them. So like peacock feathers, same thing, gentle touch. And then also if you can get like flower petals, just like break them off of the stems and like throw them on the person. It's like so, so fun. That's my favorite (laughs) part of them. Um, But also just this idea of like how much can, and it, it goes both ways where one part of it is like, how much can this person give to you? And on the other side of it, how much can you receive? Um, and a lot of times, like the way that the tantric process works is that you start by learning how to receive Mm. because receiving is actually a lot harder to do than giving. And I think if we think about the idea of like 
either receiving gifts or like, especially for women, like somebody going down on you can feel really, really, really sensitive and really, really like vulnerable. And so it's actually harder to receive than it would be to necessarily like give somebody else oral sex. And so that is, is part of that. I mean, if you're married and you want to do that, that's totally an option too. But this idea that like receiving is actually much harder. And so you start by learning how to receive in Tantra. Then you actually learn how to give. Because once you know how to receive and you know what touch feels like, then you really can give. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same way when I was learning massage and massage therapy school. Like you definitely learn what it feels like to get a massage first because it supports you in learning how to touch somebody else in a way that actually feels good. Yeah. And then the final piece of it, so it's like a three-part process. You learn to receive, then you learn to give, and then you learn to do both at the same time. And like, especially if you're in a sexual experience, if you are capable of being as attuned to your partner's needs and giving them to them, like, oh, I can feel in their body that they want me to stroke their right shoulder blade at this moment. Like if you're as attuned to that as you are attuned to like the fact that you would like somebody to like kiss your neck right now to be able to do that at the same time. Oh my gosh. That's like mind blowing experience Mm. of sexual exploration right there. And that takes, that's like the third level of it. So the first step is to learn how to receive and then learn to give and then do both at the same time. And with a partner, a really easy way to do this is to literally like set a timer and say, okay, cool. We're going to, if you don't want to do a whole puja experience, we're going to have, you know, partner A be the receiver today. And we're going to set a timer for 15 or 30 minutes and have partner B just be giving touch to partner A and then switch it the next day and then have normal experiences and just see how you can grow those two parts of yourself. Mm. That's great. That sounds just very practical, especially for people that are in sexual dysfunction, especially for people trapped in quarantine. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Another fun thing to do if you're trapped in quarantine and feeling like your libido is like dying, (laughs) which could totally be happening because you're like, especially if you're like a parent and you're like dealing with juggling, homeschooling, working from home, all that stuff. Um, take sex off the table for a couple weeks. Just totally take intercourse off the table and focus on taking turns initiating. So like partner A initiates one day, partner B initiates the next day. The other partner cannot say no. They can say like later, but they can't say no full out. Well, this is if you have a healthy relationship. Exactly. If you have a healthy relationship. (laughs) This is like Um, consent first to do this experience and then you can consent that you're not going to say no. (laughs) Um, And then you actually start by being like, okay, you're going to start with everyone wearing underwear and a bra. Even the guy has to wear a bra? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Optional. (laughs) And like those places are off, are off limits. So like, can't touch the other things. You've got to act like a teenager for a little bit. That sounds very sexy. Totally. Right. And then from there, you, you know, the next set of days you like have the woman, if there is a woman in the partnership, not wear a bra. Um, So now breasts are on the table and then the next time underwear is off 
and genitals are on the table, but no intercourse, no oral play. The next time you can add oral, the next time after that you can add actual intercourse. And so by taking those things off the table, it brings back the excitement. Yeah, I feel like there there has to be just an actual physical response to that too. Just when you get completely desensitized, if you're eating chocolate cake every single day, it's definitely not going to be pleasurable after a while. Yeah, and even like, you know, and I, my, my husband and I have done this before, where like, we're just in such a normalized way of like seeing each other naked all the time that it's not exciting anymore. Yeah. And so even the practice of being like, we're going to not sleep naked and not shower together and not do anything like that for a week. And then the next time you see that person naked, it feels totally different. Hmm. Again, like going back to my experiences as a massage therapist, like the whole body was desexualized for me because like you touch them and you see them all the time. But the one part that you don't see of a man when you're massaging them is their torso, the front of their torso, because that's always covered. And so for me, like being able to see my husband's torso became like the sexiest part of him in a way that like wouldn't have been otherwise, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love it. I feel like we should reiterate how much time things like this can take. Or even if you have a partner that's less open-minded, it might be really scary or difficult to have the conversation of like, babe, can we try this thing? We're not actually having sex. Do you have any advice on how to sort of get comfortable having a conversation like that or making it sound as exciting or fun as it can be for a partner that might be more hesitant? Totally. So (laughs) this is literally like one of my favorite things that I like give to everyone all the time. And it's not mine. It's from a man named Reed Mahalko. He's a sex educator. His website is readaboutsex.com, R-E-I-D. But he has this really great format called the, it's like the difficult conversations format or something. Um, If you type in Reed Mahalko and difficult conversations, it'll come up. But the basic plot line is you start by saying, hey, I'm going to use you, Brenda, as an example. So, hey, Brenda, um, there's something I really want to talk about. Can we talk about it now? Sure. Thanks. And then you would proceed to have the conversation. If they say no, you say, okay, great. Is there another time that works for you? And schedule it. And then you say, okay, Brenda, so I really want to talk to you about, you know, something, but I'm scared that as I talk to you about it, you're going to think I'm crazy. You're going to think I'm weird. You might judge me. You might, you know, whatever the fears are. Or I'm criticizing you. you. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, I'm scared that when I share this information and as we talk about it, you will feel X. What I'm hoping will happen from this conversation is that we actually like grow in our relationship and we find more trust and we find more pleasure and, you know, whatever it is. And then you say, here's the thing. (laughs) I'm interested in trying this like tantric practice that this woman on this podcast said, (laughs) that Rachel Alba on the God is Great podcast mentioned Um, and see how they think about it. And like, then what happens is nobody wants to let you down, right? Generally speaking, ideally, yeah. (laughs) Don't want to let each other down, especially if you're like in a romantic partnership or a sexual partnership where you're going to be talking about that kind of stuff. So, priming the person to do the thing that you want them to do 
and not do the thing you don't want them to do means that they are more likely to do the thing you want them to do and be more receptive to what you're saying. Um, it doesn't take away all the fear, but it does sort of help you have a script and help you like do the things that are necessary to start that conversation off in a, in a, in a good way. Um, and I literally use that for like any difficult conversation I've ever needed to have, whether it be like with my mom, when Dave and I were moving in together before we got married or like, yeah, I'm like remembering that conversation. I was like, I did exactly that. Um, or like with a boss, when you're asking for a raise or like whatever it is, like those, that, that, format is actually like pretty solid to use under any circumstance. Yeah. I love it. Um, I think the last interesting thing to mention is for anyone that's ingested this conversation and is considering that what we've said, you and I, Rachel, are very aligned just by the way you've spoken about it. This honor of divinity, of not worshiping actual human beings or not worshiping the actual tree or the actual cat, you know, like this is one of the main pushbacks I get to expressing that I believe there's divinity in everyone and everything. That's not to say you are making an idol out of it. It is just saying that you acknowledge that it has divinity in it. And my belief is it's so biblical and it's so important because if you believe trees have divinity in them, then you're going to want to use less paper towels. You're going to want to honor, not sin in my version of it, not do harm. The same thing with anything, animals, men, of course, leading all the way up to the person that you are in so much intimacy with, even if it's a one night stand at the bar. So just that distinction of like, you can still identify fully as a Christian person and not go down this strange, scary path we've all been warned about where you're suddenly at the foot of a tree bowing down to it and trying to hear it tell you what to do for your future. Like there's, again, so much fear around it. And it's like, that's not what we're saying. All we're really saying is- You're not gonna turn into Pocahontas in the (laughs) Disney movie where you're talking to like grandmother Willow. (laughs) Right, exactly. That was like the image that I had. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yeah. And it's it's just a fear-based mentality and has nothing to do with that. So I just thought it was interesting because I would definitely honor if a practitioner came on that didn't see it that way and was at the foot of a tree worshiping it. But for me personally, I've never been comfortable with it. That is not the kind of belief system that I believe in or practice or intend to. Um, I do have some opinions about when like divinity, true divinity is left out of conversations and left out of your practice, how I can see that leading to harm. So, you know, just letting you all know that this was a safe conversation, even if it felt very dangerous. And I hope that Rachel brought you into more of that comfortability. And I'm really grateful that we had this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Obviously you're incredibly knowledgeable. I'm going to start doing uh, sex ed courses. That's something I'm working on as well, but I, I have to grab a whole book list from you. You have thrown so many resources at me that I'm like, wow, I cannot wait to dive into all of this. Your expertise on the subject is obviously amazing. So tell us more about your course, how everybody can find you, how they can sign up. So, um, 
Yeah. Part of it's also, I, um, I have a certificate in clinical sexology. So I have my master's in theology and then I have a, a certificate in clinical sexology that was run by a woman who is a past president of the American Association for Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So she, Patty Britton. Well, now you're just bragging. Fucking badass. <laughs> um, no, that's Patty amazing. Britton's also like in her seventies and I swear to you, she is one of the sexiest women I know. Um, <laughs> in her seventies. So no matter how old you are, you're not too old to be sexy. Which oh, I, I intend, yeah. intend to carry this out as long as I can. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So how you can find me, um, on Instagram, I am rachel.alba.coaching. I used to be sex with spirit. I am no longer that because Instagram doesn't like the word sex. So <laughs> rachel.alba.coaching. Um, I am on Facebook, I have a Facebook group that usually is called Discovering Sex Positive Christianity. And right now it's called the Ditch Your Shame, Ditch the Shame Training. Um, and that's September 14th to September 17th. I have a whole bunch of bonuses that come after that exact training. And there's a workbook you can get that goes along with the training if you sign up at my website, which is www.sexwithspirit.com. Um, yeah. And I think those are, those hit all the things. Um, and that training is being run in order to launch my new coaching program, which is called Sultry Salvation. And it's really cool. Cause what I did is I'm combining, um, sex coaching along with spiritual direction. So, right. Exactly. For the exact reasons that you can think you might need both at the same time. Um, yeah. you get, two sex coaching sessions a month and one spiritual direction session. Um, cause I'm also trained in spiritual direction as part of my master's program. That was part of what I did. So that's what that program looks like. I'm really psyched about it. Um, along with it, you'll get a couple of classes that I created a while back. One of them is basically combining sexual theology, sex positive sexual theology and sexology. So what's cool about that is that it really helps you sort of break down some of the things that are misconceptions around sexuality and Christianity. And then the really cool piece about the sexology portion is it really assumes that you know nothing, which I think is sometimes a really big problem if you're coming from like a purity culture standpoint. You may not have gotten adequate sex education or may not know your body very well. And so it really walks you through practices to help get there. Um, and then it also has my class in Christian Tantra attached to it too, because why not? Um, why <laughs> Incredible. not? Incredible. Wow. Yeah. So many options. Great titling as well. <laughs> Thank you. I try. <laughs> it's like the worst part of doing anything is trying to like give things names, but no, well done. I love yeah. it. And yeah. Thank you so much, Brenda, for having me. Of course. I will link these resources below. Obviously everyone go follow Rachel so you can be up to date on all of this and that's it. We love you all so much. God yeah. Yes. Thanks, guys.